We are go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. I'm like one of those monster kids, you know, I mean, uh, so many people of my generation uh, grew up in front of a TV and I was always fascinated by monster movies, and, you know, in like the 60s, all the monster models came out and famous monsters and all those things that so many of us have in common. So, yeah, I've been calling myself Rick Baker Monster Maker since I was about 10. You know? I, I liked monsters, you know, I mean, granted, I mean, it was cool whenever somebody turned to a skeleton or something like that, yeah. you know, or there was some kind of, you know, but it wasn't really the gore because, I mean, there weren't really the gore kind of movies then either, were there? I mean, you, know, you didn't see a lot of that stuff back in those days, especially on television, you know, yeah. and I saw most of the films that really got me into this, I saw on television. Did they scare you? Did the horror movies scare you or did they fill you with joy? More fill me with joy. I mean, just with fascination. Yeah, I, I, it's rare that I was ever really frightened of, of the monsters. And if anything, I really just was attracted to them and liked them, you know. I mean, Frankenstein's monster is a sympathetic character, I think, you know. Besides being cool looking and a great yeah. makeup design, you know, I mean, you feel for that guy, you know. And it's not just a masked guy with a knife, you know, right. killing people right. as many ways as they can, you know. And, 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 you know, I mean, fantasy and science fiction and all that stuff, I just liked unusual looking creatures. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're going to be diving deep into some of our favorite creature designs over the years. God knows there's, there's hundreds of these creature designs that we could talk about. But each of us have selected one to uh, discuss with you all today. And then as, as we have some time towards the end of the episode, we'll get into some honorable mentions. Um, so straight away, let's kick it up to the satellite. Karen, take it away. Hey, thanks, Larry. Yeah, you know, we were talking about different things we wanted to discuss on the show and just thinking about, you know, all the amazing creatures, whether they're aliens, monsters, uh, mutants, dinosaurs, whatever that we we've looked at over the years and thought, wow, you know, how did they do that? How did they design, you know, such an amazing creature, whether it was through, you know, makeup, sculpture, uh, models, what have you. And so, yeah, we just decided, hey, let's talk about them. And so uh, the, the one that I wanted to talk about today is one that uh, was very early in my fandom. And I'm sure, you know, you guys also love and are, are listeners love a great deal is the original planet of the apes designs oh, yeah. for you know the, the the apes the chimpanzees gorillas and orangutans um you know there's uh, quite a bit of uh, history and story behind how those amazing makeups came to be um there was a lot of concern initially by the filmmakers whether they could pull it off you know the whole fate of the movie really rested on whether they could develop convincing makeups for the ape characters and uh, at first you know they weren't sure that that was possible um they thought well maybe we should kind of hedge our bets and instead of going full ape <laughs> maybe the design should be more like a, a neanderthal something a little more human looking uh initial uh, makeup designs were by uh, ben nye he was a very famous makeup artist uh, in Hollywood at that time and headed up uh, Fox's makeup division. And you can still see these initial screen tests if you go on YouTube and you look up, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes screen test. Uh, these were done in 1966. Uh, it's really well known, I think, because Edward G. Robinson appears in the screen test as Dr. Zayas, uh, along with Charlton Heston. And uh, you can kind of see the beginnings of the makeup, but it's very crude. It's certainly not the makeup we got in the original film. Uh sort of resembling an ape, not quite there yet. Uh, and certainly the other actors who were in the scene, uh, which was James Brolin, probably 
to to a lot of the younger listeners, better known as the father of Josh Brolin, who became Thanos, and then uh, also Linda Harrison, who interestingly enough would go on to play Nova in the uh, in the Apes films. Uh, the two of them were made up to look like what was supposed to be chimpanzees, but really just looks like almost like deformed humans with kind of stretched out lips. That they were not made to look very hairy at all. Um, but this was the beginning. This was the screen test. And this was what kind of um, sold it to the executives at Fox that, you know, OK, this is just our initial screen test and we're, we're going to do even better makeup. Uh, but then uh, uh, Ben Nye sort of was like, well, I'm not sure what else I can do makeup-wise. And uh, they reached out to John Chambers. So John Chambers is a, a legend in the makeup world. Uh, he has a very interesting background. He was the son of uh, Irish immigrants. Uh, he uh, was, uh, uh, in World War II, he made uh, prosthetic body parts for injured soldiers and for vets. He made uh, facial prosthetics especially. So if somebody had an injury to their face, um, you know, if they had damage to their nose, to their lips, he learned how to work with prosthetics to... Um, you know, cover that up so that they could appear normally. And he also did a lot of dental prosthetic works. And so um, he was quoted as saying that basically, you know, he it kind of took a toll on him even after he left, uh, you know, after the war and he started working and doing this kind of work in the medical field. Um, you know, working with those patients emotionally, it was very hard on him. And so he started thinking, well, maybe I could do something in Hollywood, you know, and he knew how to work with all these materials, these prosthetic materials, latex and plastic and rubber and all these things, and um, was quite the artisan. And so when he came to Hollywood, he was really sought after. And his work was often seen in shows, but often uncredited. You know, he did things for like the Munsters and Outer Limits and um, famously, you know, made uh, Mr. Spock's ears on Star Trek. So he was well known around around town. And so, uh, you know, when this this uh, challenge of making the apes came around, his name popped up. And so Chambers was brought in uh, to make the, the ape uh, prosthetics because they knew that they really needed something that looked realistic and that the actors could wear and um, emote in. And, uh, you know, Chambers saw this as a, a unique challenge. So he looked back and he saw um, from The Wizard of Oz, The Cowardly Lion, and how the actor there was able to uh, emote with them, all that heavy makeup on. And that really inspired him. And so, um, you know, with his, with this concept in mind, he started developing these prosthetics. And so basically um, he also worked with a, a number of handpicked makeup men. Um, Tom Berman was one. Tom Berman was uh, just making his way in the makeup world, although he had a famous father, Ellis Berman, who was also a makeup artist. Dan Strupke and a bunch of other guys who were um, excellent makeup artists. And so he trained them in how to use these appliances. And he basically had like four pieces that he would use. There was a T-shaped brow and nose, um, two mouthpieces and chin piece. And so um, they worked like an assembly line. You know, they had a lab running 24-7 because these pieces were so thin and delicate that after they used them, you know, that most of the time they would just tear apart when they had to take them off the actor's. Um, in the evening. And, uh, you know, they were just working around the clock, applying these these pieces to the actors. And, you know, it's amazing when you see the simplicity of the design in a way, like when you see how it's applied to them. But at the time, you know, nobody had done this kind of intricate work. He was able to create these amazing sculptures and then molds from those sculptures. And his work with latex was fairly revolutionary at the time. Um, one of the interesting things talking about it, um, when they talked to the actors, you know, people, actors really hadn't experienced that kind of full face prosthetic um, at that time. Most actors hadn't. And uh, there were a, a range of experiences. Roddy McDowell, after he first had the appliances put on, um, kind of went bananas 
pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for about 15 minutes, he was jumping around uh, the, the stage and, and, you know, making animal noises and, and throwing his arms up and down and, and just acting crazy. Um, poor uh, Kim Hunter, when she looked in the mirror, uh, she kind of lost herself. She couldn't figure out, like, it wasn't her and she didn't know who she was and she cried for a while. Oh, wow. uh, and then Maury Sevens, who played uh, Dr. Zayas, he was delighted. He was like, oh, I'm like a new character. I'm a new person. And and he had a completely different experience. So uh, it was really um, sort of like a, a, I don't want to say life-altering experience, but it was a, a you know, a, a brand new experience. Uh, experience for these actors having to wear so much makeup and um for the the audiences you know they did some tests after they put these new makeups on and uh, you know the executives who saw them were just like baffled like how how did you do that how did you create those makeups you know and especially um creating appliances that moved with the actors mouths and allowed them to to do their um emoting and speaking uh, so convincingly. So, um, yeah, you know, this was just like way beyond what anybody had ever seen at that time. And of course, um, you know, having the movie come out was quite revolutionary and it inspired like a whole new uh, group of young uh, makeup artists. Of course, Rick Baker is obviously one. Um, but, you know, we look back on it now, I think all of us still look at that film and just adore it. You know, the makeups, um, I think, really hold up. There's still believable characters and the way they're able to emote through the makeup um, pulls you into the story, you know? Oh, I agree. I, I, I would even go so far as to say, you know, um, some of the more modern takes, not the CGI version, but there was a, a version that they came out with. And they, they really tried to refine and redefine the the makeup that they used and it uh, it it looked believable but they were too ape-like at that point mm -hmm. um you know talking about the uh, tim burton version are you yeah yeah you know. i thought they looked less ape-like they were like almost like humans slightly deformed but i mean yeah i didn't think they looked ape-like at all right i yeah you know it was it was really a breaking moment in makeup and effects when that original um movie came out back back in 68 um and it still holds up today what's a lot of fun you go to a convention and you'll see some of these folks walking around a good friend <laughs> of the show don bishop has a fantastic ape uh makeup uh, uh from that film um it's just so darn believable yeah i think the key is that john chambers did such a beautiful appealing sculpt uh you know for the the different faces um they're almost uh like archetypes, they're, they're, they have an appeal to everyone. And he knew like in certain ways that like, okay, this is maybe less ape-like, but it has, you know, some of the features. I mean, he went more ape-like than they initially wanted. They initially wanted to stick, make it a little more human looking, but he would do things that maybe were, I don't want to say comical, but like pleasing to the eye, you know, like the way he designed the nose or the curvature of the lips. Um, right. Some of the things he did maybe aren't anatomically the same as an ape's, but you still look at it and say in your head, oh, it's an ape. But maybe it's, you know, like the chimpanzees are pleasing. They, they don't look threatening. They, they look, you know, like peaceful, you know. And so you get sort of the impression that you're supposed to get for each of the apes. The gorillas, on the other hand, you know, you do get the impression like, oh, they're probably, you know, tough and warlike. And the orang orangutans, you know, eh, they're somewhere in the middle there. But, yeah, he really conveyed sort of the spirit of those characters through the sculpture. And, you know, if you think about evolution from Neanderthal to us today, part of what was going on in my mind as well, these are evolved apes. These are evolved mm -hmm. chimpanzees, so they're not going to look like what we see in the textbooks or at the zoo. They've they've evolved. Right. So this is this is what they look like at this point. They don't look like they do in Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp. 
You know, just a last couple of things. Uh, Chambers, you know, quite the character, um, also went on to work with the CIA later on in life Good. and, uh, you know, pretty famously had uh, helped use his disguise skills to um, rescue some folks during the Iranian hostage crisis. Um, also, there were a lot of rumors floating around that he created the Bigfoot that we see in the Patterson-Gimlin film. And that has raged over and over the years with people saying, no, he didn't, uh, he didn't, it's the wrong time frame. He couldn't have done that. Others people saying, oh yeah, look at this suit in this Lost in Space episode that he did. And I don't know, I, I have no opinion in the matter, but I, I find it quite amusing that the guy who did Planet of the Apes also worked for the CIA and is also accused of doing a Bigfoot movie. The guy, that's a larger than life character. You just shattered, you just shattered all the cryptologists out there. <laughs> I, I didn't say what happened one way or the other. I'm just saying or that's what they say. It's all a rumor. <laughs> so that's what I got. Who's who's next? That's cool. I think we're going to kick it over to, to the chief. Bob, take it away. Well, you know, I I had to mull over quite a few monsters. I was going the monster route rather than a creature or alien, whatever route. But, uh, I, you know, I had I had to settle on King Ghidra because I think that's like the most amazing monster design. Yeah, I mean, it was designed by... Akira Watanabe back uh, for the 1964 movie Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster and uh, it was basically based on other multi-headed dragons. I mean you had the seven-headed Hydra in Jason and the Argonauts. You also had the eight-headed uh, Orochi, the eight-headed dragon that was in uh, the Three Treasures Japanese film from 1959. And uh, in fact, Ghidra comes from the Japanese word for, for Hydra, which is Hidora, H-I-D-O-R-A. So um, they added the G on there just because, hey, you know, why not? So <laughs> uh, if you look at the original, I mean, the design was always the design. Three heads, two tails. I think they shied away from trying to do a monster suit with eight heads or seven heads or whatever. But... Um, the three heads, two tails, definitely very distinctive. And uh, if you look at very early production photos of the suit, it's actually the body, the heads, and the inner part of the wings are blue. And then the outer edges of the wings are red. And it looks pretty, pretty interesting. But at some point along the line, they made the decision to just paint it all gold, which I think really was the right decision. I mean... The multicolored Ghidra looks pretty cool when you look at him in stills, but with studio lighting and moving around and things, I don't know if all that color would be all that great. But um, yeah, basically premiered in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. Uh, the, the actor in the suit basically is moving the legs and holding the body up. His arms are basically folded in front of him and he's holding on to a bar. In fact, you can see on on the suit it almost looks almost looks like breasts, but they, uh, it's like the actor's arms is there as he's holding the bars. The rest of it is all puppet work. So you mm -hmm. have uh, you have special effects technicians way up in the rafters of the studio with wires on all three heads, two tails, the wings. You know, there was like a dozen people up there just coordinating all the movement. And then they made the necks very flexible so that they could get different positions and movements and things. And really, when, when you look at it in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and even in Monster Zero, um, those heads go flailing everywhere, especially when he's flying. They're going up and down to the side, knocking into each other, whatever. But I thought that was cool. That gave it sort of this really frenetic type personality where it's like you know everything's going the heads are going everywhere and then they would animate the lightning coming out of his mouth and uh you know sort of like i think you know when they saw the film it was like, okay that that head looks like it's pointing in the right direction stick a ray in there mm -hmm. you know, that one's going the right all right stick one in there so basically when he's flying along his heads are going everywhere and then lightning is sh shooting in all different directions and uh it really makes for for an interesting creature. In fact, the first time 
I saw King Ghidorah was actually in uh, the follow-up movie Monster Zero. And when uh, Yoshio Tsuchiya, as the ruler of Planet X, says, I will show you Monster Zero, and presses the button, and here he is, here's Ghidra flying over these hills on Planet X, and yeah, the head's going everywhere, and the lightning flying everywhere, and I thought, oh, this is so cool. Yeah, I was probably you know, a kid back then, but I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. But uh, yeah, he would come back in uh, Destroy All Monsters in 1968, and uh, the head seemed a little, the neck seemed a little more stiff, so he didn't quite get that frenetic movement of the heads. It was more, you know, pretty much they were they were fairly straight and they would, you know, curve up, down, left, right. But uh, it, he would also make a re- appearance again in Godzilla vs. Gigan in 1972. And it was the same suit between all four movies. So by the time he got to 1972, the suit was looking kind of ragged. <laughs> but uh, but then again, so was Godzilla. The, the Godzilla suit they made for Destroy All Monsters in 68, they used in destroy all monsters and Godzilla's revenge and Godzilla versus Hedera and Godzilla versus Gigan. And that one as well is pretty beat up by then. In fact, there's a scene as Godzilla is approaching the Godzilla tower that if your TV's big enough and your Blu-ray's sharp enough, you can see, <laughs> you can see Haruo Nakajima's thumb sticking out of the glove of one of the hands. That's wow. how, in fact, you know, even when Godzilla attempts to get up, a couple times after he was, you know, beaten to the ground, you can see like it was almost like eh, it fit in with the seventies. It was like fringe, <laughs> hanging off <coughs> underneath his arms as he would get up. But uh, you know, Ghidra was it was in no better shape by then, and uh, they would retire him basically until nineteen ninety one when they get, did Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, and that was a whole new suit, whole new Ghidra. In fact, he didn't. He wasn't a space monster. In that one, he was uh, basically mutated by, from three creatures called Dorats. And uh, I don't know, there was something about that suit that I thought was kind of lacking. And maybe it was the fact that, you know, they tried to make everything so, you know, basically not frenetic. Basically, the, the necks were very straight and they'd move around, but not in this crazy motion more balanced yeah pretty much and then uh after that he wouldn't come back until uh godzilla mothra king Ghidorah, giant monsters all-out attack which was about 11 years later and uh he was basically almost like a young Ghidorah because he was uh the original monsters in that were not supposed to be mothra and Ghidorah. it was supposed to be uh varan and Angerus, but Toho wanted the big hitters in there so when they made Ghidorah, they uh, they couldn't make him bigger stronger than Godzilla as he was in the other films. They had to make him sort of a, a younger version. The wings aren't quite as prominent. You know, they, they're there, but they're just kind of hanging. But, you know, as time went on, he would also fight Mothra and Mothra Three, and uh, kind of return in Godzilla Final Wars. That was Didn't like Kaiser more late Ghidorah. than the Mothra movie? Um, no, well, they had one called Death Ghidorah in the okay. first. And, uh, but... Yeah, the one in Final Wars had four legs. Okay, all right. And, and then there was, was the Mecha one, right? That was like Kaiser Ghidra. Yeah, in 1991, they did uh, like a Mecha right. King Ghidra. And that was actually based on a Yuji Kaida cover of Uchisen magazine. Mm. He did a, uh, a, based on a mechanical Ghidra on that. And uh, Shinji Nishikawa, who designed most of the monsters in the Heisei series and, and into the Millennium series, he... Uh, you know, based it on that. So it was pretty cool. And then, of course, we had Ghidra in all CGI glory in the legendary Godzilla King of the Monsters. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, you know, that one was interesting because they had a different actor playing each head. Oh, wow. And so you'd have TJ Storm, and he was basically playing Godzilla with his green suit, the ping pong balls. And then you've got three actors playing Ghidra. And uh, let's see, I had them listed here. Let's see, that would be uh, Jason Lyles, who also did like CG work in Rampage. And uh, there was Al- Alan Maxson and Richard Dorton. And uh, they would basically put their arms around each other <laughs> and then they'd move their heads around and make expressions. But they basically did that so that each head would have a different personality and make different expressions. Mm. And uh, yeah, it worked it worked out pretty well. Like I say, uh, it was more kind of serpentine 
the way he moved and cur- curved around and flew. But uh, yeah, you know, it was always, you know, what would Ghidra look like if he was, you know, CG? And there's, there we got our well, answer. Was was one of the heads supposed to be kind of dopey? Yeah, um, they basically, I think, what was it? They, uh, they, they named the heads one, two, three, or in Japanese, like each knee, san. And then the if you if you're Ghidra, your left head was nicknamed Kevin because he was <laughs> he was kind of always kind of the dopey one. But okay, um, so I yeah, I mean, it, it's quite interesting. He kind of became a, a cult favorite with all the Godzilla fans out there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, all these different ways to bring Ghidra back to uh, or to bring him to life. In fact, he even appeared in two episodes of a Japanese superhero show by Toho called Zone Fighter. Hmm. And that was actually, that was probably the last time the original suit was used. But Did, uh, did they use the suit or borrow the suit for Pee-wee's Big Adventure in the finale? They had Godzilla. No. That was our friend Cleve Hall. Huh. He built the Ghidra oh. suit and the Godzilla suit for that. Oh, wow. So yeah, spot on. Yeah, he did a great job, and uh, yeah, he lo—he's gone now, unfortunately. But yeah, he loved that stuff. In fact, if you watch Monster Man, he's got a couple episodes. He's got like there's one specific episode where he gets to build a monster and a superhero to fight it, and he's just like has to play the monster. And that's really where you get an idea of what these actors went through because he's in this monster suit, and you can only go so long, and he ends up just like passing out. Because there's no, you know, there's not a lot of room to breathe in there. They're heavy, they're hot. And uh, I mean, if you think about like in 64, it wasn't as bad as 10 years earlier when they did Godzilla King of the Monsters and the the suit was basically rubber with like bamboo framework. And uh, the actor, you know, well, Haruo Nakajima through most of it, you know, they were getting, you know, rubber burns and you know lacerations everything else in those suits in that suit but uh yeah by the time they got to Godzilla versus King Ghidorah obviously the Godzilla suit had much more mobility to it and I'm sure whatever technology they came up with uh Ghidra you know was was good as well and uh yeah I know they they would line them instead of just having rubber there so you know, later on, they would actually put like oxygen tanks and things. Right. So you can, you know, for when like Ken Pachiro Satsuma as Godzilla in the 90s would like go underwater, he'd have like, you know, he'd have uh, apparatus so he could breathe. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, Haru Nakajima in the 60s, he'd go underwater. He'd just have to hold his breath until he popped back up again. So, yeah. Wow. I know uh, one year I was lucky enough, I went to WonderCon and I uh, got to talk to Peter Mayhew for a bit, you know, who played Chewbacca, and he, but he was also the Minotaur in, in uh, Minotaun. Been bad. Yeah. I talked to him a little bit about the Minotaun suit and uh, he was, oh yeah, that was, that was tough. You know, that was a tough suit to wear. And, and I asked him about Chewbacca and he said, well, you know, the first Chewbacca suit was difficult. He goes, now though, he goes, oh, they've got it all lined with these cooling units. And I, you know, there's a little <laughs> air blowing on my face. And so, you know, yeah, it's the difference in decades, right? The technology is there to make sure that the performer is taken care of. So... It, it's true. And and it's interesting to think. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead. I know I still have my slot, but there are a lot of creatures in Star Wars that went the CGI route as the series progressed, movies and TV. But something like a Wookiee, like Chewbacca, always remained a man in a suit. Mm-hmm. There's well, something I mean, ba- to be back said for in, uh, Back in the early 90s, yeah. I went down to uh, Burbank and they were shooting... Ultraman, the ultimate hero. And uh, we got to watch them do some scenes, you know, film some scenes. And the monsters were all really big. So they all had like, what well, they called them NASA cooling units inside, mm-hmm. like they used in the spacesuits. But Ultraman is skin tight, so you couldn't have that. So mm-hmm. they had these gallon jugs all lined up, which had like Gatorade and they would add potassium pills in there or potassium mm-hmm. tablets. And so the actor, after he'd do a scene, he'd pull the helmet down and he drank a bunch of Gatorade. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was just, he was chugging these all day long. And I was like, I, I asked the director, I'm like, 
So what happens when this guy has to go to the bathroom, you know, chugging all that Gatorade? He goes, well, he doesn't go to the bathroom. He sweats it all out in the suit. It's just, yep. That's how hot it is and how, you know, because it's basically like wearing a padded, you know, skin diving suit. Right. Yeah. Scuba suit. Having and, a wetsuit uh, on all day. Yeah. Well, and you hear some of these guys say they'll lose, you know, 10 pounds or whatever. Just, I mean, they're just sweating it all off. They're oh, yeah. dehydrated. And it wasn't, you know, the, what they did with with Ultraman Powered or Ultraman, you know, Ultimate Hero is they shot outside in Burbank. Now, it's still hot in Burbank, but instead of having studio lights, they had giant reflectors mm. and they would reflect the sun to, to create the lighting. Whereas a lot of the Japanese actors, they're under not just all this rubber, but also the hot studio lights. Yeah. And they could generally go about, you know, 10 minutes. Nakajima could make about 10 minutes in the suit. And he lasted longer than most. <laughs> and uh, they would basically unzip and pull him out of the suit for a break. And then they'd empty like a couple inches of sweat out of the bottom of the suit because it was so hot in there. It must have smelled horrible. <laughs> That, that suit, like after a while, man, that must have been rank. Oh, well, you know, you, we have Dennis Lancaster's Godzilla suit at a lot, at a lot of our shows. And uh, that thing, man, that thing's probably 30 years old and just all the funk that's inside. <laughs> and Dennis cleans it out and he airs it out and, you know, hits it with Febreze or whatever. But Oof. I had a guy, I brought it to work one time because I had to take it to the um, to the theater that day. And one of the guys at work is like, oh, please let me wear it. Please, I got I to gotta put it on. I got to stomp around the warehouse. I got to put it on. I'm like, all right, go ahead and put it on. So we got him in the suit. And as soon as we got him all Velcroed up, his comment was, I can smell my ass. <laughs> and I said, you know, I got news for you, pal. That's probably not your ass. <laughs> That's the funk of 30 years of people wearing that suit. Oh, my God. So, yeah, and the Godzilla suits, you know, they, they recycle them in a few movies or they make new ones. But, yeah, I mean, 10 minutes in there and it's probably already got the funk going. Funky Godzilla. Well, that was cool. All right, boys and girls, your mission commander uh, went back and forth, back and forth, and finally settled on the iconic creature belovedly known to us as King Kong. Um, I picked Kong because of, of all the creatures that I was looking at, um, he has gone through the most changes. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of them have longevity. I mean, Kong's over 80 years, going on 90 years. In, a, in another couple of years, he'll be 90 years old, 90 years young. Um, you know, Willis O'Brien, the, the first movie was back in the 1930s, 1933. And Marcel Delgado is the man who actually, you know, drilled the, the joints and the arms and the metal frame together. And then they made the animatronic Kong that was in the first film. Um, I think they use the same design. They may have made a new one for Son of Kong. Um, and, it, you know, it, it worked so well. They used it for Mighty Joe Young and, you know, some other uh, films that needed a fairly large ape. Um, after that, though, they went to um, Man in a Suit, and that was uh, the Japanese King Kong versus Godzilla movie. Um, and that was in the 60s, Bob? 62. 62, because I know the, the, the next movie was King Kong Escapes was 67, a year before your mission commander uh, was introduced to this earth by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mission Commander. Um <laughs> Okay. King Kong Escapes is one of my favorite Kong movies. I love the original, um, but the whole concept, and and that's why I brought up Mecha uh, Ghidra. I love Mecha Godzilla, uh, Mecha King Ghidra, Mecha Kong, a robot King Kong. I mean, to this day, I, I wish they would do a modern take on that. Well, you um, know where that that Mechanic Kong actually started out. Well, where is that? Chief? In the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rankin Bass cartoon. There's actually Doctor Who is in the cartoon and the Mechanic Kong faces off with King Kong because the 67 King Kong Escapes was a co-production between Toho and Rankin Bass. So a lot of it was kind of based on that cartoon. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, You know, and that's that's true. There were a lot of animated 
uh, versions of Kong as well, but I'm going to focus on the and comic books. We were talking about some comic book um, versions of Kong. Um, I'm focusing on the the movies. We, we may dive a little bit into the the cartoons, but um, we get into 1976, mm-hmm. and it was Rick Baker um, who designed. Uh, he was the man in the suit. The majority of Kong that we see in that King Kong movie is him in a suit. There, it's a Dino De Laurentiis production, and so there's about five or six hundred thousand dollars that was poured into this mechanical. I forget <laughs> how many feet tall this this Kong was, and it was hydraulics. And we talked about this in our King Kong episode before, so I won't really spend too much time on it. But it, it's staggering to think what they tried to accomplish, and they couldn't get the thing to work well. So it's in about ten or fifteen seconds worth of film. Um, in that version of Kong, if you see Kong, the part of the movie where he's escaping and they put the crown on him and he's he's kind of seems like he's having a seizure. That's the <laughs> mechanical Kong. <laughs> As I recall, the uh, hydraulics had a malfunction and it looked like he was peeing down his leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. We've gone to a number of monster paloozas. We've we've heard about uh, Bruce the Shark and Jaws. We've heard about um, gone to some of the Walt Disney presentations of the Tiki Room and the Pirates. And the whole discussion when they when they're going to do a mechanical version of of a monster, a creature, or a person is: Do you go with pneumatics, which is air, or hydraulics, which is fluid? With hydraulics, if if a line breaks, it looks like the thing is peeing or bleeding, depending on where the break is. <laughs> On the creature, if it's pneumatics and and there's a line break, well, the thing's going to fart because it's air. So, <laughs> um, anyway, that's how I remember pneumatics and uh, the difference well, between. Well, I know when they were hyping the movie and they were talking about that mechanical Kong, uh, the mechanical Kong, they were going to use that supposedly in like almost every scene. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. That's that what was, they were touting. I mean, and then I think when they got it and all it did was just kind of move its arms and cock its head back and forth, that was like, okay, bring in the suit. There's a, there's a great book, uh, and we may have mentioned this before, Ray Morton, uh, The History uh, of a Movie Icon, uh, King Kong. And they have some really good pictures of that mechanical King Kong um, there's also a book by Bruce uh, Bahrenberg, and I'm sure we mentioned this before, the creation oh, yeah. of Dino De Laurentiis' Kong. And they have some pictures of them, you know, starting to put the thing together and just how they just, it's not going to work. No bueno. But hey, you know, conceptually, it was a great idea. Practically, not much. And the Japanese never learned from it because for Return of Godzilla, they made a giant mechanical Godzilla just like that Kong. And yeah, he's in about as many scenes as Kong was. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's they use him on publicity tours and that type right. of thing. But yeah, as far as the well, movies. The pictures no. are really cool. I mean, you know, and I know the Godzilla you're talking about, yeah. Bob. I mean, um, but it gave Ray, it, it, this gave Rick Baker an opportunity to really shine in this film. I mean, um, again, not taken away from the, the 1933 Kong. I, I love that version. Um, but, you know, his eyes would, would show emotion. And, you know, yes, they had the big mechanical hand that, that they would utilize in almost all the Kong movies to pick up, uh, in, in this case, Jessica Lange's character. But, um, you know, whether he was fighting the snake or, or um, you know, just eating or, you know, even when they, they gassed him and he fell over. I mean, it just at the time, you know, if you watch it now. Maybe it doesn't hold up. I think it does. But at the time, it was amazing. The only the only complaint I'll have about that, the, the 76 Kong, is the poster had this massive, <laughs> you know, standing on both towers of the World Trade Center with a, uh, you know, Air Force jet in one hand. And they see the movie. And, and again, not taken away from Rick Baker, but it's a drastically different design to ape than on that poster. <laughs> Well, going back to uh, Godzilla, Cinema Shares, Godzilla versus Megalon. The poster for that was Godzilla and Megalon facing off on top of the Twin Towers. 
Yeah. Which uh. never happened ever in the movie because they're in Japan the whole time. So. Right, right. Well, the, the, the towers were very popular when they were first built, you know, so everybody wanted to utilize them. But yeah, that King Kong poster, man, I had that poster up on my wall. <laughs> I wanted to see that movie so bad before it came out. It was ah. And I still, I love that movie. And in a lot of ways, and it, I know it's blasphemous, that's more my Kong in a lot of ways than the original, just because it it just hit at the right time for me at that age, you know? And yeah, I had the poster, I had all the little knickknacks and, you know, other stuff. And yeah, Larry, that makeup, the, the mask the, that, you know, the sculpt that Baker did for the face and everything and the way he was able to emote, you know, yeah. And they're, they're using, I mean, this is where we start getting into more the modern age of prosthetics and, and, you know, design, you know, they had different masks and they had different uh, facial expressions. And, you know, you had people off stage working things to move the brows and, you know, the cheekbones and stuff, but he, he had a lot of expression in the face and you could tell, oh, he's angry. Oh, he's titillated by, you know, Dwan in the waterfall or, oh, he's, you know, he's in pain or whatever. Um, so, you know, he had a complete character because of the way he was able to emote. You and, and you almost feel like whatever they learned from the Planet of the Apes effects and the makeup, mm -hmm. they kind of incorporated into this design. He didn't wear clothes or anything like that or talk, but you're right. His his lips, you know, could move there. You know, he could do a snarl. He could do a smirk. He could his his brows would open wide when he was surprised or mm -hmm. um so well, then was, Baker would go on, though, to do the apes in, what was it, Congo? Yeah. Yeah. With Sigourney he Weaver. Did. And then he had to create the apes to look like real apes. I mean, they weren't supposed to be, you know, a monster or a evolutionary, you know, speaking ape. Those were supposed to be just real live apes in the jungle. Right. He's, he's done a lot of different ape uh, makeups or designs. I think he yeah, did Schlock as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a deep dive there uh, Chief. that's right <laughs> but um yeah it was uh it's not kino lorber um was it shout factory that came out with the yeah very nice yep, the 76 version. great transfer i mean um you know the colors are bright and vibrant um i haven't listened to all of the uh the interviews and bonus material on it but uh, if you folks haven't had a chance uh check that out anyway uh you know it's almost a decade later and uh we get king kong lives Ooh. And uh, yeah, that's about all I'll say about that. Check out our King Kong podcast. <laughs> On to the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> On to the next movie. Um, they had the, um, the the next King Kong or version of King Kong was Peter Jackson's uh, 2005 or was it six? I think it's 2005. 2005. Like eight hour version or whatever. Oh, <laughs> Um, they, t to me, at least the head, it was, it was closer to the 76 poster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually liked the head on that one, the face. Yeah. That one tooth like sticking up and yeah, kind of like he'd been through a few battles before. Right. He, you know, the scar and stuff like that. Yeah. And this was a hundred percent CGI, but they utilized Andy circus uh, to wear a suit and um, w which interestingly enough tying Planet of the Apes to this Andy Serkis would be utilized to right. be Caesar later on in, in Peter or not Peter Jackson um, but in the in the more modern uh, Planet of the Apes films um, you know this movie to me I don't know it, it, it's okay um, I understand the decisions that they went to go with CGI. I mean, after, you know, the success that they had with Gollum and Lord of the Rings and, and some other films, um, th they went with it. Um, not my favorite film out of the series, but the design is good. I think the design was closer to a, a huge gorilla that, that mm -hmm. we see in, in the zoo. I mean, we've all, you know, uh, seen them out there. Um and a matter of fact, I really realized that when we were at a uh, family vacation at Disney World, Walker, remember, we went to the right. Animal 
kingdom and that ape was just having a good time with that frisbee and his water bowl and just entertaining <laughs> himself you know not even caring if we were there or not right this this one in jackson's film is definitely more of a giant gorilla whereas before you know kong was sort of a man ape and i think it was more i don't know why the original stop motion was designed that way because you could have made it more gorilla like as far as his posture i mean obviously with a suit you're kind of limited and and maybe you have to make it a little more upright and everything but uh yeah this one is definitely the first where it was really uh it's really more like just a giant gorilla and not a mix of a man and an ape you know well i think up I until agree. then yeah. i mean kong was considered more a monster than a he happened to look like a gorilla but he they wanted to make him a monster and you know especially with the rick baker i mean he he walked upright quite a bit you know not a lot of crowd i mean the 33 version at least he was crouching yeah. on all fours and a lot yeah. but he also you know walked when he's walking through the village and eating natives and things you know he's not on all fours he's walking upright um but yeah i, I think with jackson's he was more quadruped and and the way that he acted and reacted to his environment and you know the people um the giant bats uh, you know, prey predator um, just seemed more like a more accurate portrayal. Um, I, I guess. Oh, go ahead, Walker. Sorry, I, I guess you know, thinking about it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to have him interact, if you're going to have Kong interact with, um, is it usually Anne, the female character? If you're going to have him and interact with the the female character, then I suppose. You want him to be more than just an animal, right? Mm -hmm. You want him to have some sort of mentality or a soul or something that we figure is more, more than just a an animal. And so maybe that is sort it's of the rationale. to us, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, that, that's the bridge that, um, yeah, it's a fair point. Um, what I wanted to mention, too, is I know we said we were uh, I said I was talking about movies, but with the failure of the De Laurentiis mechanical hydro or um, hydraulic Kong, that technology was ultimately utilized in the uh, Kong that was at the Universal Studios tour. Oh, yeah. There was this huge version of Kong. For those of you that went on the tram ride and he was there for a better part of a decade before a fire, unfortunately, um, burn that part of the attraction down and what uh what universal did is just like in cinema rather than rebuild a pneumatic or a hydraulic version of kong they did a cgi version of him the tram goes through this tunnel and you know t-rexes and kong and spiders and all these giant things are jumping around the tram as as you go through it and you have to put on your special kong 3d glasses because it's all in 3d and um i've, I've long live william castle <laughs> i said long live william castle yeah Exactly. I've had the good fortune of experiencing both versions of the of the Kong ride. I'm sure there's there's YouTube video, uh, at least of the old uh, Kong. And I forget how many pieces or how many feet of material they had to drape over that uh, oh robot version of Kong. That one was cool. I really liked the old original one. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing like practical effects. You could, I, I mean, because you, you were really looking out. You could see you were looking out of the tram. There was nothing between you yeah. and that Kong, that big face. And yeah, that was cool. In, in later years, before it burned down, they added a banana smell. So as you got closer to Kong, you started smelling bananas. <laughs> but um, anyway, on to probably after the first film, um, well, okay, second is Mecha Kong, so this would be my third favorite, uh, Kong Skull Island. Yeah. Um, man, he kicks ass in this movie like nobody's <laughs> business. I just, I love it. Um, and and uh, Samuel Jackson can play such a bleep hole in this, um, and, and he does. He, he really just adds to this film. Um, John Goodman's in it for a bit of time, speaking of... Uh, William Castle. Uh, I finally saw that matinee movie we were talking about before, Bob. Oh, I finally watched it. Yeah, no, that's great. Watched Love it. it. Yeah. Good, good movie. Um, yeah, th this movie's awesome. Um, 
Don't, I for, don't forget uh, Loki and Captain Marvel are in it, too. You're right. Tom Hiddleston is in there and uh, Brie Larson. Brie Larson, yes. Um, and they're right in it, too. Um, oh, God. Uh, what's his name? Uh, John C. Riley. John C. Riley. I love that guy. Um, he has also been in a Marvel movie. He he was in Guardians. So now John Goodman needs to be in a Marvel movie. <laughs> then the, almost the whole cast could have been Marvel movies. Well, you know, with with that Spider-Man movie coming out in December, one never knows. <laughs> yeah, I think Kong is in that too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spider-Kong uh, from another uh, He's going to play the Gibbon. <laughs> So but no, Skull uh, Island. I love Skull Island. I could watch that a hundred times and not get bored of that movie. Yeah, that's a good one. I was going to ask you guys what you thought of it. I mean, that that's more of a modern take. It's they built upon the CGI version from from two thousand five, and I think they just blew it out of the water. I mean, when when he stands erect, like you know, the challenge is on with the helicopters, and he starts like that's like man. I like that design much better than the Jackson design. I think they kind of went back to like what's the classic Kong look, you know? And uh, yeah, he's not he's he's less of the animal ape, and he's more the the classic kind of uh, I don't know, not necessarily the nineteen thirty three, but yeah, he has more that monster look than the uh, animal look to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, there there's a scene where he's uh, eating, I think it's a squid or an octopus, and mm. you know, he gets wet. And the, the beads of water falling off his fur, you know, when he, it's just, it's it's some of the best CGI I've ever seen. I mean, we, we love practical effects w- without a doubt, but that was just awesome. Well, when you, you build something to that kind of scale, it, it would be hard to do on a practical level, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they they've blown Kong up to such a huge, and that's another thing, like his size. Now you went from a guy who was maybe 30 feet tall in the beginning. And now what he's got to be several hundred feet tall. Well, see in, in Kong skull Island, he was supposed to be a younger Kong because mm-hmm. he grows up. He's got to grow up a whole lot more to be anywhere near Godzilla size. Right. In uh, Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah. That's a good, you know, and the funny thing is, Bob, I've never thought of Kong as like a monster, um, you know, but some people think like the Terminator is a monster, too. So I don't know. At some point, we should probably have a, a discussion. I know we talked about vampires versus ghouls versus zombies. She's kind of like, well, you know, what is a monster? Well, I mean, it's a very loosely defined term. I mean, a, you know, in real life, we call people who you know, do horrible things, monsters. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, Bob, I made a good point. I mean, you know, he's stepping on people, he's biting heads off. You know, it's like, well, that is very monstrous activity. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, you know, when they pitched it, they said, we're going to make a monster movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a monster and, and movie so, with a giant ape. Yeah. I think uh, this is also when they started tying in or, or connecting the, the tissues with the uh, new version of Godzilla. Because the next movie we get is King Kong or Godzilla versus Kong. And the monarch, you know, storyline had carried through and the, the, you know, predators and the apex predators and all that uh, come into play. And my wife, Jazz, uh, Lieutenant Jasmine, had only ever seen like bits and pieces of Godzilla. She she had a, a you know, limited knowledge of Godzilla, somewhat aware of King Kong. And, and we watched Godzilla versus Kong. And I, you know, was lukewarm on it when I first saw it. Jasmine loved we had to watch it two or three times. I mean, she just really loved this movie. Um, I think for me in this movie, it's, it's a good film. But Kong was just too evolved at that point. For me, I mean, there was a society of Kongs and he utilized the tool or a weapon. And I don't know, I should I should probably watch it again to, to just kind of well, figure out. The, w- the way I look at it is Universal slash Legendary, they own Kong. Mm-hmm. They can do Kong movies till the end of time. Now, Toho owns Godzilla. And that was the last Legendary Godzilla movie under the, the original Toho contract. 
So if they want to use Godzilla again, they've got to renegotiate, come up with a new contract, work under Toho, blah, 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 blah. So I think what they did with Godzilla versus Kong, it's like, okay, well, let's give Godzilla some cool scenes, but this is a Kong movie. And, you know, we're going to give Kong... Because if you're going to continue a series of movies with Kong, Mm -hmm. then he sort of has to have more of an intelligence, more of a personality, more Mm -hmm. of a, you know human characteristics than just having a bunch of movies with a big ape in it. That's yeah. a, that's a fair point. And, and that was that. part of what we were talking about with the 76 version is there's, there's more of, you know, connection between us and Kong than in the 2005 version. So I will look upon this movie with fresh eyes, chief. Well, I mean, it's one thing to do like a two hour, three hour movie with a big ape. <laughs> But if you're going to do sure. half a dozen two-hour movies with a big ape, that's like, what, 12 hours of a big ape? Hey, you better right. be a little more interesting than grunting and growling and running around. Yeah, I'd like to say that's a fair point. That'll Something to consider when I take a look at that again. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, that, was, that was my pick, uh, King Kong. It was fascinating to me, you know, the different versions of Kong throughout the 80-plus years. You know, he was a... a, a puppet that that you know was on screen and then man in a suit uh tried to be a mechanical uh version and then ultimately wound up in uh cgi so we'll see you know what he'll turn up you know in another 10 or 15 years as hologram you know hologram exactly (laughs) well i think like in the next 10 or 15 years you'll probably have multiple legendary kong films basically I think he's going yeah. to carry on the MonsterVerse rather than Godzilla at this point. And, you know, it's funny. I haven't heard anything um, from, you know, from that studio of if they're going to continue the Monarch storyline, start fresh. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. We'll see. They could be in heated discussions with Toho as we speak. Who knows? Dun, dun, dun. But, if, but, you know, if Toho wants more money or they can't agree on things, then it's all Kong yeah. at that point. Yeah, very true. Well, kid, we're we're almost at the end of the show, but we did promise some honorable mentions. Um, So before we get into the censor sweep, did either of you twos want to uh, mention an honorable mention creature design that is iconic and a favorite of yours or all? Well, there's there's so many, right? We could I mean, I know we've talked about some of them. I know. I think I know what some of you guys' are, which are probably favorites of mine. I'll, I'll throw out the original Alien, mm. uh, because it's changed a lot over the years. But I, I love that original uh, design, especially with the transparent skull, where you can see, like, the empty eye sockets. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just one of the most, like, terrifying creature designs ever. And, of course, it's inspired a lot of copycats that were nowhere near as good. Um, But, yeah, uh, I I would say Alien is one of my favorites. Very good. People who have listened to the podcast know that I have an affection for the creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, yes. Which uh, was an amazing, amazing monster suit for its time because it had a lot of detail, a lot, you know, it was very well built. It had air bladders in the gills so that they would open and close as he's walking along and the mouth was moving and and just to be able to swim underwater with that suit as well. I mean, that was just so amazing. The other, other, you know, the other uh, thing I was considering for this episode, there's a uh, Japanese designer named Tol Narita and he designed all the monsters for Ultra Q, Ultraman and into Ultra 7. And his designs, if you look at things like Balton or Zeton, very, very unique, very unique, especially as aliens. But uh, also monsters are, if you look at uh, Gabora, who's going to be in the next, uh, in Shin Ultraman. And so here's this monster with this big cone-shaped head for about half the episode, and then you find out that the cone opens and his actual head is underneath. And uh, things like that, it's, I was always amazed by his designs growing up. So, uh, yeah, other than just mentioning a monster, I would say Tol Narita would be uh, some someone to take note of as far as designing creatures go. That's cool. Um, you know, I was thinking about the Bigfoot from Harry and the Hendersons, but I thought, well... <laughs> but then we'll, Karen we'll shattered yeah. your dreams about Bigfoot. <laughs> 
we'll save that for uh, for a potential future episode. Um, a favorite of all of ours, we've actually uh, done a podcast on the Predator films, yes. uh, is the Predator. Stan Winston, once again, um, hit it out of the park. But this was one of the early uh, jobs that Stan Winston Studios had. And um, I think all of us were fortunate enough to be at the presentation at Monster Palooza, where um, some of those folks that, that brought the Predator mask and costume and makeup, you know, in that. Uh, mask um, to life uh, talked about filming and and getting that suit uh, to look uh, as realistic as as they could and what an original design as well oh yeah um, one of my absolute favorites too you know not necessarily based on anything else that we have seen or experienced or at least that I I can think of I mean yeah it just works so well and you know to their credit they're coming out with yet another predator movie i think next year is it 2013 no 2023 um it's going to be a prequel of sorts where he uh the predator is going to fight an american indian have you guys heard about that i've heard about it yep well i hope it's good that's all i've got to say That's sort of the opposite of Cowboys versus Aliens. (laughs) Every time they come out with a new Predator movie, it's like, fingers crossed, let's hope this one. The Predators look great in the film. It's just the story that's kind of... Right. But, uh, okay, One of these days, we got to get Steve Wang on the show. Steve uh, basically made the mask for the original Predator, painted it up, and, yeah, he uh, was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. Yeah, I think he was a part of the panel at Monster Palooza. There was him and oh Matt Rose, and I'm probably forgetting everybody else. But yeah, that was a wonderful panel that year, and they really—you uh, could just tell that they knew they had done something special. And of course, we're all still talking about it decades later. So there was an amusing um, story that they told where the the one device it, it could only blow up once. And they, they didn't think to let it blow up multiple times because they might have to take a second take. And so it blew up. And, and luckily, they didn't have, if I'm remembering the, the story right, they didn't have to, like, rebuild it or anything. It just, you know, worked out well for them. Yeah, those guys, I mean, they were uh, brought in after that initial ant-type suit <laughs> did not work out too well. Um, so they were they were really running and gunning and trying to get this thing done. And, of course, part of their Winston shop was also working on Monster Squad right. while they were trying to get this done. So, yeah, quite a story. I know we talked about it a little bit before, but it bears repeating that, you know, was a, a amazing project that they uh, that they wound up giving us. Well, I know Larry mentioned matinee earlier. How about Mant? <laughs> you know, on the on the Blu-ray that I got, Bob, they have the whole Mant movie available to watch, and I haven't done that yet. Yeah, they originally had that on the Laserdisc. Uh, I was disappointed they did not have that on the DVD release, but luckily, yes, they have it on the Blu-ray. Yeah. So I'll, uh, you know, I, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. We keep on, I, I could go on and on, but. Yeah, we could have a four hour episode. I know, right? <laughs> Please leave your eyes at the door. You will not need them. Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rackin' Auditorium presents the best of old-time radio, horror, and science fiction. Tales of terror and the uncanny that unfold on the stage of your imagination. Come experience the magic of old-time radio horror. Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rackin' Auditorium is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other podcast providers. Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rackin' Auditorium. When you seek the darkness. This is the part of the podcast where we have our censor sweep. And uh, yours truly has this uh, episode, Censor Sweep. This came across my desk, and uh, my lovely wife purchased this for me as a early Christmas present. Now, this is the beauty, and sometimes it's not so beauty, uh, of the hall. Like, okay, here's a cool ornament that... Um, is of the Batcave from the 1966 Batman, and it has Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson on the top, getting ready to swing down the bat poles. But how do you put that on a Christmas tree? How does that tie in with the <laughs> Yuletide? Um, they, they don't, you know, sing any Christmas carols or, or anything like that. But this thing is so cool. It, you know, uh, we'll we'll have a picture of it on the uh, 
on the web page, but uh, it has, like I said, Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, um, up, up on the top, getting on the bat poles. And the detail is amazing. It actually has their names above them, like in the show. Off to the left side, there's the um, uh, bat phone. And when you push the button, it, it runs off of batteries. The bat phone starts blinking, and there's dialogue, and obviously the Batman movie. Um, the the bust is there that, that opens the secret door, and um, the door is actually open and closed, and there's the bat computer down in the bat cave there's a lower level and when that door opens up they're in costume and it's not on the christmas tree uh but it is uh over here <laughs> on my desk and uh as with all these other uh flotsam and jetsam of, of genre related products you know it could, it could take the place of the nativity scene at below the christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> well i i have it parked next to the lego batmobile so i thought that was a fitting uh fitting spot for it but uh if you guys get a chance it's it's on the hallmark website right now i don't think they've sold out i'm pretty sure it will sell out because it's a little fun you know whether it's an ornament or, or just a conversation piece that you have on your desk at home um i, I mean, highly recommend if it. it does take place in the nativity scene i'm sure at some point there's got to be some uh robin dialogue where he says holy right <laughs> well, you know, what I was thinking, Bob, when I got it, is that they'd be singing, you know, Batmobile or uh, Robin Lady. Batman smells. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but, you know, lost opportunity. Anyway, that draws this uh, this episode to a close. Appreciate you guys for tuning in. Make sure to check us out on uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Until next time, cut. That's it. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.